Welcome to the Horse.com's monthly live broadcast, Ask the Horse Live. This is a show where veterinary and industry experts answer your horse health care questions. This month's topic is the best hay, grass, and other forages for your horse. I'm your host, Michelle Anderson, Digital Managing Editor of thehorse.com. Tonight's event is brought to you by the Horse's Nutrition Newsletter. So I'm really excited about tonight's topic. Uh, as an at-home horsekeeper who lives in the high desert country of Oregon without irrigated pasture, hay is the biggest horse-related expense that I have. I know that I have a lot of questions, and, and I hope that everyone listening does as well. We decided to approach tonight's topic from two directions. First, from someone who's an expert on how hay is best produced for horses. That's Tom Keene, who is a hay production marketing specialist with the University of Kentucky. We all know that Kentucky is well known for for its grass. Uh, Secondly, we wanted to talk to someone who understands how horses are affected by what we feed them. And our expert on that is equine nutritionist, Dr. Nettie Leibert. Welcome, Tom and Nettie. Thank you for joining us tonight. Thank you for having me. So I'm going to start with Tom. I I want to ask you to tell us a little bit about your experience producing forages specifically for horses. Okay. Uh, Grew up on a family farm in uh, central Kentucky, a small community. I went to the University of Kentucky, and during my high school and college days, I custom baled hay and that type of thing. Upon graduation from the University of Kentucky, I was a farm manager for two local thoroughbred farms for approximately 10 years uh, with about 3,600 acres, 200 broodmares, 40-some stallions. And my one of my sole responsibilities was taking care of the pastures, ordering all the hay and straw for those horses, uh, broodmares, yearlings, stallions, uh, mares with bulls, that type of thing. Upon leaving that, I worked in the commercial hay industry for about 16 years, uh, crisscrossing the country, sourcing hay, bringing it back to Lexington, shipping it to New York, Florida, uh, Virginia, places where we have high equine populations. And since uh, then, I've been here at the University of Kentucky working uh, with our equine pasture programs group, uh, particularly on a, a pasture evaluation program. So uh, I've been around a few horse pastures and have seen a bale or two of hay in my day. <laughs> okay. And Nettie, can you tell us a little bit about uh, your experience and your practice in equine nutrition? Sure. Uh, well, I grew up all around horses my whole life. Uh, I did not come from a horsey family, but fortunately had very supportive parents. I grew up in 4-H and uh, after college, you know, went and got a job and said, you know what, I, I really need to work with horses. So, um I went to graduate school studying equine nutrition and exercise physiology, and from there, I mean, my interest and my passion for it really, really grew, and I gained a, a complete brand new respect for horses and what they're capable of. Um, so I went to work for a feed company where I was a technical equine nutritionist for about three and a half years, um, and uh, from there, I contracted with another feed company for about a year and uh, did a little bit in multi-species nutrition. Um, and concurrently, while doing all of this, I run my own equine nutrition consulting business and have been at that 
Uh, wow, for about nine years now. So I am a horsey kid. I'm a horse owner, so and I'm a scientist. So I am fortunate to be in the unique position to really relate to the horse owners and the problems they face because I face them too. But I also have the perspective of an industry person and uh, you know someone who's done the research and understands how to break all that stuff down. So um, I really enjoy you know, talking to people about their horses and helping to evaluate rations and trying to make improvements where necessary. Okay. Well, I like I've already said, I'm excited to have you guys here. I know that I've spent a lot of time, um, well, I've spent a lot of money on hay, and I've spent a lot of time looking at uh, at different forage bags, nutrition labels, trying to figure out what's best for my horses. Um, I'm sure that our audience has a lot of questions. This event is an hour long. We're going to stay, uh, do our best to stay within that time frame. Uh, if you're listening live, you can submit your questions live via your browser window. Uh, we're going to do our best to get as to as many of your live questions as possible, but we do have a bunch of questions that were sent in during registration as well. Let's go ahead and get started. Uh, Nettie, the first question is for you, and it's from Don in Colville. And Colville is in eastern uh, Washington, which is definitely farm country. Uh, Don says that uh, he's been hearing that the best way to know what is in your hay is to have a sample tested. He says that usually that's not practical before getting hay since when you test from one, what you test from one field may not be the same or available from another field. So Don says that he presumes that you can test hay after you've gotten it and adjust a feeding program according to that information using feed and supplements. Or he wants to know, is is it really necessary to have an analysis done on hay? So, Nettie, big question. Uh, what are your thoughts? Uh, well, thank you, Don, for your question. Um, you are correct. The only way to truly know the nutritional content of the hay is, in fact, to have it tested. Um, so one thing you can do is ask your hay producer if they test the hay. Some of them do. Some of them do not. Uh, if they don't, you can ask them if they're willing to do that, um, if they can take a representative sample from their fields and provide you with the results. It's not expensive to do, um, but depending on their time constraints, they may or not may not be willing to do it, but uh, you never know if you don't ask. Um, you can test on your own, of course. Uh, you can get a reasonably good hay sample for between $25 and $30, depending on where you send it. Um, but for many of us who keep horses in the backyard, maybe you're only buying a few bales at a time. And if your hay is only lasting you a week or two, by the time you get your results back, you're probably buying different hay. Um, so most of us probably grew up not even ever hearing of a hay test, and our horses turned out just fine. So testing, it's really a great tool for ration balancing, especially if you have a horse that has a specific problem or, um, you know, you maybe have a weight issue or a vitamin issue and you're not really sure what the cause is um, or, you know, you're raising young foals and you need to know exactly what minerals you're putting into those babies. Um, so that aside, if you're unable to test your hay, you really need to use your best judgment. A lot of this comes from experience. Now, if you come upon a bale of hay that smells very musty or moldy, you're not going to feed it. So at least look for hay that um, is sweet-smelling, that isn't dusty, that you're not seeing a lot of weeds in, is not too stemmy, um, does not have a lot of seed heads in it, um, and try using some of those guidelines to pick the best quality hay 
That you can. And you can ask your producer to help you. They should be able to guide you a little bit. I hope that uh, helps, Don. Okay. Our next question is for Tom, and it's from Beverly in South Carolina. And she wants to know where can she send her hay to have it evaluated? Can you tell us a little bit more, Tom, about that process of doing an analysis on hay? Well, uh, as, as Nettie mentioned uh, just previously, the main thing in getting your hay tested is to get a representative sample of that hay that, uh, that you are feeding. And um, what I would recommend anyone do is uh, work with a group called the National Forage Testing Association, uh, NFTA for short, and they have a website called Forage Testing. That's all one word, foragetesting.com. O-R-G. And if you go to that website, uh, it will have a list of certified laboratories that you can send hay samples to and feel very reassured that you're going to get a, uh, a qualified sample that's very representative of the hay that you send in. Uh, there's also documentation on there about how to take a sample, how many cores to take, how to treat that sample and all the things you need to know about getting good results so that once you get those numbers, work with your nutritionist, your veterinarian, your uh, feed consultant, uh, you've got some valid numbers, and you have the confidence that, that they're going to have you feed that horse the correct way. Uh, the usual price, like she said, was somewhere between 20 to $30, $35 per sample. Uh, our next question is for you, Tom. Again, it's from Cindy in New Jersey. And Cindy says that although most of the purchased grass hay in bales is green and not dusty, some of the ends are bleached because of the sun that has hit it in storage. How does this impact the nutritional value of hay? And should horses eat this part of the bale that is bleached? As long as it's just bleached and there's no moisture that's getting to it, Usually that does not penetrate into the bale very far, uh, maybe a quarter of an inch, half inch, up to an inch, depending upon how tightly it's baled. And really, if it was all the way through the bale, it, it does have a, an effect in leaching out some different components of the hay. But just if that edge of the bale is, is getting a little bit bleached, uh, that's not going to hurt the quality of the hay, and it, it's not going to hurt the animal as far as I know. Uh, again, as long as there's no mold or any dust or anything like that, uh, bleach in of itself uh, will not hurt anything. So I've gone to purchase from from my hay farmer. I get it directly out of uh, out of his stack. Um, and sometimes there is a lot of bleaching just on one end that gets a lot of sun exposure. Um, during the day, especially here, we have really intense sun. Should I ask him to not give me all of those bleached? bales? Am I getting less for my money, uh, Tom, if, if I get bleached bales? Well, I mean, certainly you, you don't want them all to be bleached. If they're all bleached, you'd want a discount in the price. Uh, again, it's not going to have any nutritional uh, problem um, interior of that bale. Uh, I have an axiom that I use quite often. It's very simple. Uh, when it comes to hay for horses, uh, green is good, brown is bad. And um, so that's just you know, as long as it's nice, sleepy green, uh, has a good color to it, again, a good smell and that type of thing, uh, not going to be a problem. Uh, but, yeah, if you're getting all end bales and he's sending the other stuff somewhere else, uh, I'd want to uh, get a little discount on the price. And then if you have any concerns whatsoever, again, that very end flake, you might throw it out. 
uh, it's not going to be a problem unless it's been getting moisture, you know, getting wet, drying out, getting wet, and that type of thing. Our next question is for Nettie, and it comes from Larry in Temecula, California, which he notes is about 60 miles north of San Diego. Uh, Larry says that he has a large front and backyard. He wants to know, how can I allow my three miniature horses to graze on it? How often should I allow that? He says that he puts nothing on the yard that is chemical or made by man new fertilizers or pesticides um, and the horses are 13 years old and 25 years old is it okay to to multi-purpose our yards especially like where i am it's i have the same situation where all of my green grass is in my yard and not where my horses can eat it if they get loose they're in my yard <laughs> So, so, Nettie, is it okay to let them graze on, on your nice green irrigated yard? Uh, I think yes, but there are some caveats to that. Uh, first, of course, you want to make sure that you're not that you don't have any ornamental plantings that are toxic to horses around your yard, and uh, the list of those are long. Uh, but some common ones are uh, like the boxwood boxwood trees or boxwood bushes. Um, some use and nightshade, those kinds of things are toxic. So obviously you don't want your horses getting into those. So you want to make sure that there's none decorating your beautiful yard. Um, so Larry, it's tough to answer this very specifically um, because the main concern is, of course, one of the main concerns is the body condition of these ho- of, of your minis. Minis, as most of us know, they will get fat on air. Um, they usually don't need a lot of grain. Um, and they're just fine if there's sufficient grass or hay available. Of course, that's a generalization. Um, so as long as they're not fat, their body condition is good, maybe they're working for you, maybe they're pulling a cart or we're doing something of that nature, a few hours per day of grazing should be fine. Um, if you're concerned about too much sugar in the grasses, uh, you can graze them in the morning and maybe remove them in the afternoon, especially if you have a nice sunny day, which I understand you have lots of in the San Diego area. Um, but if weight gets to be a problem, obviously you're going to want to keep them from grazing too much grass, maybe use a grazing muzzle, because um, you don't want to restrict them from moving around. So you want to keep them exercising and moving as much as possible. Um, also, I don't know what kind of grass you have, some lawn types may or may not be appropriate for horses. There are many that can serve both purposes. Um, Tom, I don't know, do you have a comment to that effect as to what types of lawn grasses you may want to avoid? Well, again, it, it, it's going to depend. Uh, typically in our area, our lawns pretty much are made up of the same species that we have in our pastures, tall fescue, bluegrass, orchard grass, ryegrass, and those kind of things which are all perfectly fine for horses, other than tall fescue. That's another issue we'll talk about on another day. But, um, yeah, I don't know of anything that would be an issue or any species at this time that would be an issue. So, Tom, uh, you you just said uh, the F word fescue, and I <laughs> and I I specifically want to ask about that because I do live in like I mentioned the high desert er- desert area, and I have a low water grass. Uh, I also have a corgi, my dog, that is incredibly allergic to bluegrass um, or any other grass species except for fa- fescue. So we put in a low water fescue yard. Should I? Um, be concerned about grazing my horses on my fescue yard? 
Uh, absolutely, I'd be concerned. Uh, most of the turf-type tall fescues uh, have done quite a bit of uh, breeding in the last 15 to 20 years to get high endophyte levels into that fescue because that makes the fescue uh, very tolerant of a lot of different problems such as insects, drought, uh, heat, and so forth. And so uh, turf-type fescues uh, certainly are going to can cause a problem, and, and I would, uh, especially for pregnant mares, but um, fescue is just a bad word when it comes to pastures and, and horses, in, in my opinion. Okay. Well, um, my horses are going to be very sad <laughs> to, to hear that. Um, our next question is uh, along those same lines. It's uh, from Cindy in Mississippi. And Tom, Cindy wants to know what are the best kind of grasses to plant in your pastures for your horses? Well, Cindy, it really depends upon what part of the country you live in. And uh, certainly if you're in the uh, northeast, it's going to be different than, say, in Mississippi. And certainly that would be different than what you would have in the northwest, Washington, and Oregon. Uh, being in the South, uh, being in Mississippi, probably the most utilized species for horses is Bermuda grass, and it's a good forage. It can be very palatable if we manage it correctly. It does take some nitrogen fertilization. Uh, it's very tough. It spreads with uh, stolons on top of the ground, rhizomes under the ground. It can, take, it can tolerate close grazing. Uh, it does take quite a bit of management. Uh, but it's probably the most preferred species in the southern tier of states of Mississippi, Alabama, and Georgia uh, when it comes to horse pasture. So Bermuda grass would probably be what I would recommend. Okay. We have a question from our live audience. Um, it's from Zora in Reno, Nevada. And Zora wants to know if there are any considerations or any research information about GMO forages. Do you, either of you have any thoughts or information about GMOs and uh, their use with horses? Uh, either one of you can jump in if you have, a, have any thoughts on that. Uh, I know that the um, American Society of Animal Science just published some research on this topic. They weren't looking at horses, of course. They were looking at um, feeding generally production livestock species GMO feeds, was it impacting their meat quality and things of the, things like that. So it was not directly applicable to horses, and obviously they were only looking at this feeding practice over a short period of time. But to my knowledge, as of now, there is no research on how uh, GMOs affect horses in the long term. Um, and it is very difficult to get non-GMO feeds for commercial manufacture because many of the feed companies can't guarantee that they're getting non-GMO products, if, if that makes sense. Tom, do you have any additional thoughts? Uh, no, I agree, I agree Nettie. Um, most all the corn and soybeans nowadays are, are GMO, and there are components in a lot of the horse concentrates and supplements that we have, so... Uh, the animals are being fed that. Uh, the only forage that we have right now that is uh, Roundup Ready or GMO, if you will, would be alfalfa. And a tremendous amount of alfalfa is now uh, being grown as, as GMO. And uh, that's being exported. There's some issues in that in terms of exporting hay overseas and all, depending upon where it's going. But there is a tremendous amount of alfalfa that is, is being planted as Roundup Ready. 
And if you have concern about that as a horse owner, I would ask my supplier if it is, in fact, uh, Roundup Ready or GMO alfalfa. And if that's a concern, then, you know, you may want to look elsewhere. But I'm aware of no research that says it's been detrimental or beneficial either one. Our next question is for Nettie. It's from Marianne in Texas. Marianne says that she has a horse with equine metabolic syndrome. She would like to know what is, what is the best forage for him, and should she soak it before she feeds feeds him? Um, do you have any any thoughts for Marianne on on feeding her horse with equine metabolic syndrome? Absolutely. Um, I think Marianne also mentioned that she feeds some Tifton 85 and that he doesn't like it very much. Um, so Tifton 85 has some slightly larger stems when it's compared to its cousin, if you will, coastal Bermuda grass. Um, so that could be one potential option is to, to see if he'll eat that any better. Uh, if it's harvested properly, it can still be obviously very palatable, very nutritious. Um, but because her horse has equine metabolic syndrome, I do recommend she could soak that hay for about 30 minutes to dissolve the sugars and the starches that are in it. But then, of course, it's very important to discard that soaking water and you know not let the horse drink out of it. Otherwise, you've just defeated the purpose. Um, Again, she mentioned that the horse didn't really like the hay she was feeding, so I'm guessing that she that he probably leaves some behind. I believe uh, close to Bermuda grass should be fairly readily readily available in Texas, where I believe she was writing in from. Um, so perhaps she can get a hold of it and see if her horse will eat it any better. Of course, remembering to just switch him over slowly. You don't want to change him over all at once. So yes, there is no harm in soaking it. You will lose. Some, um, some vitamins and minerals, but uh, a small amount of a ration balancer can rectify that without adding back a lot of sugar or, or calories. And I have a follow-up question on this topic for Tom. Tom, there's a lot of talk amongst horse owners about low-carbohydrate or low-sugar haze. What, what are people talking about when they talk about these low sugar haze, what should you be looking for? And how can you know that that's what you're buying when, when you're getting hay that's marketed that way? Well, it goes back to testing as we've already talked about earlier this evening. And, um, you know, the timing of the day when you cut the hay and so forth can have an effect on that. But most of the species uh, are, are, are not going to have a lot of variation I would be suspect when I start hearing some of those things and wanting some type of clarification as in a uh, uh, an analysis of the hay to confirm that it is, in fact, you know, low-carbohydrate, low-sugar. Uh, again, I, I think that might be a little bit of smoke and mirrors in some cases. Uh, but, again, timing of the day and, and the species can make a difference, but typically... The haze are, are what they are, and I, the only way I would want to feel really confident about that is have that hay tested. Okay. 
Um, our next question is for Tom, and it's from Deb in Michigan. And Deb says that she's worked on clearing 10 acres of land to make pastures for her horses. She said the soil is quite wet, but she's had uh, drain tiles installed and hopes that helps. What kind of seed would you suggest she plants? She said the land is a mixture of sand, clay, and soil. What, what suggestions do you have for Deb? Well, Deb in, in Michigan, so again, we're talking about a northern climate. It'd be one of those areas where we'd be looking at a, a cool season grass species primarily. Again, bluegrass, orchard grass, uh, rye grasses, that type of thing. I would encourage her to go to the Mississippi State University website, their forage website, and look at their variety trials. Uh, they have many different varieties that they compare against one another to talk about stand density, longevity, grazing tolerances, and those type of things. And if she'll go to forage.msu.edu, she'll be able to find out a, a lot of different information about the different species that do well in that area. Again, we were talking uh, from, with Cindy from Mississippi, and we were talking about a warm season species like Bermuda grass. Totally not what we'd be looking for here. Again, some of the cool season species, uh, but that's where I would start is with that the research at Mississippi, or excuse me, Michigan State University. And Tom, for since hay and pasture is such a regional thing, what other resources are there for horse owners throughout the country to find what is right for their area? Do you recommend going to the extension services? Is it going down to your local ag store and having them point you in the right direction? Who Who's the best person to find this information from? Well, that's a great question, Michelle. Here in Kentucky, when we're talking with farmers, our first advice to them is to always contact their local county agent, their ag and natural resource agent. And from there, they'll have different avenues to help uh, horse owners, uh, hay producers, and that type of thing. So they're our first line of defense here in, in Kentucky. Uh, but when we get out in the country, many of the land grants, uh, colleges, uh, universities still have variety trial programs, not as many as we used to have, obviously, but, you know, certainly up in the Northeast, Penn State would be one, uh, Michigan State up in the North, Kentucky here, uh, we get down South, maybe Louisiana has some, Texas, uh, California, Idaho. So we have those uh, variety trials around the country for that very reason. And again, most of those are accessible on the internet. Uh, always good information there, uh, but our first line of defense or first boots on the ground, if you will, are, are our county agents here in Kentucky. Okay. Our next question is for Nettie. Uh, this is from Maddie, and Maddie is in Australia. And Maddie wants to know what is the best hay or feeding practices uh, for a laminitic horse? Nettie, what are your suggestions? Uh, well, there are. This is a big question. This is a hot topic, and I do get this a lot. Um, so, obviously, your goal is to manage the horse's weight. Um, if he's sound enough to exercise, that's very important as well. And you want to keep starch and sugars low in the diet. Now, we talk. We've talked tonight a lot about low starch and low sugar. Scientifically, we really haven't determined what officially is mean what low starch really means. Kind of industry-wide, we tend to use this 20% mark. So anything below that, we tend to consider low. Um, uh, and even with some uh, 
muscle diseases, it's even lower than that. So number one goal is, of course, weight management and diet management. So also, if the horse is on any particular medications, I like to discuss these with your attending veterinarian to see how that may or may not affect metabolic concerns. But generally, if weight is a problem, we've got to design a diet to promote weight loss. Uh, A lot of times that is a forage-based diet, but sometimes just a little bit of a ration balancer built in. Um, Again, if you're worried about energy, if the horse, you know, is in work and needs, you know, sometimes we have laminated horses that are underweight. We get them their calories by adding fat to the diet. Uh, Horses can tolerate up to 20% fat in the total diet. So that can be a really, uh, a really important energy source for these horses. Um, Soaking hay, again, I mentioned earlier, you can soak it and get a lot of those sugars out. Limiting pasture access, especially in the early spring and in the fall, you don't want to allow your laminitis-prone horse to graze in the afternoon, especially if you've had a nice, beautiful, bright, sunny day. Um, So generally, horses that are really at risk for laminitis should be kept off pasture, preferably kept in a dry lot and given a controlled amount of, of grass hay. You want to avoid alfalfa because it does tend to be a little bit richer in energy. Um, so if your horse is very sensitive, you may even have to limit certain treats, uh, like even apples or any of those high-sugar molasses-based treats you want to be, you want to be a little bit wary of. Um, one or two is probably fine, but you don't want to feed the whole bag. So a couple of things to go in, and again, if the horse is sound enough and fit enough to do a little bit of exercise, that will really, really help glucose management and, or glucose metabolism, and it will very often help with the laminitis or help prevent laminitis flare-ups. So I hope that helps. Thanks, Nettie. Our next question is for Tom. It's from our live audience. We have Kathy in Virginia. And Kathy wants to know if it's okay if you have a bale of hay that has a bit of a moldy spot or a couple moldy spots, but most of the flakes or some of the flakes seem like they're fine. Is it safe to go ahead and put that out in the field for the horses to pick at? Tom, is that something you would recommend doing? Well, uh, I mean, if, if you can verify that the basically where we have our mold is in the middle of the bale more often than not because we can't get that uh, moisture out, out of the middle of that bale. The perimeter of the bale, usually we don't have too much problem. So if you can take the flakes off of either end, they smell good, there's no dust, there's no brown or grayish material, anything like that and they want to do that, probably okay, but certainly the center of that bale, if there's any concern whatsoever, you just don't want to do it. Um, we just get into some problems, and, you know, we the horses can't tell us that it was or wasn't the hay if we have an issue, so I always want to err on the side of caution, and if there's any concern, you know, just get rid of the whole bale. But um, I have seen just hot spots in the middle of the bale, throw the middle half out and keep the two ends would be fine. But again, always err on the side of caution. Okay. Uh, Tom, our next question is from for you. It's from Denise in Georgia. Denise says that she has a pasture that's in poor condition. She wants to know what are the best methods for improving a pasture for horses. In Georgia, specifically, she uh, would like to know what are the best grasses or plants for her pasture. What recommendations do you have for her rehabbing her pasture for her horses? Well, the first thing we always want to do, no matter where we are, when it comes to our pastures and maintaining good pasture health, is we always want to start with a soil sample. And we want to contact uh, 
our county agent. We want to contact our local fertilizer dealer. They're always happy to come out because they want to sell lime and fertilizer. But we need to get that done. We need to get it done well. We were talking about getting a representative sample of hay earlier tonight and how important that is. Uh, same thing with soil testing. Again, we want that soil to be the optimum growing media for those plants that we can possibly have. Uh, a lot of horse owners are, need that production. A lot of them are overhorsed. And if we've got poor soil, you know, low fertility, uh, low lime or low pH, uh, we're just going to have bigger issues quicker. And so that's the first place to start is to get that soil test and bring those P and K levels up, uh, bring that pH up to where it's needed for the, the species you want to grow. Um, recommending a particular species, again, in that area, uh, Georgia, Bermuda grass is, is probably the most common one. There are some other things out there, Bahia grass and so forth. But if you look, if you go from the Tennessee border of Georgia and Alabama and Mississippi and go south to the coast, probably 75 to 80 percent of horse pastures in that area are Bermuda grass. Again, some of them, as Nettie mentioned earlier, are coastal. Some are some of the improved varieties like Wrangler and all. Um, you'd want to choose those wisely. Again, some of the smaller stemmed ones. And maturity when harvesting or when grazing also plays a, a, a big effect on, on what they get out of that pasture. So soil testing and Bermuda grass would probably be where I would go with that. Our next question is for Nettie. It's from Donna in Tucson, Arizona. Donna says that she doesn't believe if she... Um, has dealers who are selling bagged forage or she has seen that dealers are selling bagged forage and she has been very intrigued by it as a potentially clean and healthy product for her horses. Would you consider bagged forages to be superior to say quality Bermuda grass hay? And if so, what are the relative cost differences between a bagged forage and a baled forage? Uh, Nettie and maybe Tom will jump in on this one as well. Okay, uh, yeah, that'd be great. Um, well, it's a little bit of a loaded question, but it is a good one. I can't really comment too much on price because that largely depends on uh, growing season, yield, freight. Uh, same for the bagged forage. Plus, you have to consider the dealer's got to make something. So prices can really vary depending on where you live and how far the pro how far a bagged product or even a grown product has to travel to get to your door. So one of the benefits of bagged forage is that you're generally getting a very consistent product. So what you're buying this month is probably very close, if not almost identical, almost <laughs> to what you're buying next month. Um, and with agriculture, anytime you grow something, it's very difficult, if not impossible, to get something super consistent like that. Um, so granted, the bag forage is being grown hay, but they have a, a different kind of uh, quality control there. Um, so with regard to Bermuda grass, I presume you're referring to the coastal Bermuda grass that we've mentioned. Um, and there are a number of varieties of Bermuda grass in existence, but coastal was developed to be a, a good quality, high quality forage for horses. So if you have access to it, it's probably more economical than bagged forage. It's certainly very appropriate for horses, but you know, you don't want to feed over mature coastal. You want to make sure you're, it's being harvested before, before it uh, reaches to maturity because the more mature it gets, the 
less the nutritive value to your horses. So uh, again, even if you have a horse with, say, a respiratory problem who's very sensitive to molds and dust, those bag forages can be a real lifesaver to those animals. Uh, But if you have access to really good hay, my guess is that it's probably more cost-effective and easier for you to stick with the good quality hay. Okay. And Tom, any additional thoughts on on bagged forage? Well, I think Nettie touched on some really good points there. Um, Anytime you do something to a forage, uh, in terms of processing it, you're adding cost into it. So in order to get a a pelleted or cubed product, uh, you're having to not only cut it and bale it, which you have to do anyway, then you've got to take it, have it grinded, ground rather, then you have to run it through some type of pellet or cuber or something like that. So you're, you are increasing the cost of travel, uh, depending on where it comes from as well. But one thing I wanted to touch on that Nettie made a point of, and and that is the maturity of the hay when it's cut. And it really doesn't matter whether it's the pasture or the hay, uh, the maturity of that species when you harvest it, either by grazing or by putting it in hay, is going to have the biggest effect, other than the species, on the quality of that hay. So getting it cut at that right time, uh, that late boot stage uh, or earlier, is going to ensure quality uh, about as good as anything. So uh, she, she really made a good point there. Okay. And, Tom, I have a follow-up question for you on that, because you, you talked about the cutting of the hay at different maturities. And lots of times, as horse owners, we get offer, do you want second cutting? Do you want third cutting? Do you want first cutting? Um, what is the right answer to that question, and what is the difference between different cuttings of hay? Well, yeah, there's, there's a, lot of, a lot of myths going around about that. Uh, if, if they're cut at the right stage of maturity, just as we mentioned, uh, you're, all of them are going to be high quality. And especially if we've done our soil testing, we've got our fertility where it is, we've got the right species in there and the right species mixed. Uh, cutting it in that late boot stage uh, is going to be critical to get the quality. And so it, it really doesn't matter. Now, the first cutting uh, uh, in the grass species is going to have that stem and seed head on it or can have if we let it go too far. And if we get that far, then our quality is beginning to go down. Our later grass cuttings, the second and third cutting, typically don't have those in there. So they might tend to be a little bit higher in quality, but again, if they're not at the right stage, we can get into some poor quality hay with them as well. And of course, this is all predicated on the fact that we don't get any rain on the hay once it's cut down. So um, that stage of maturity is very, very important. And the cuttings, first, second, third, or fourth, uh, all can be high quality. Uh, Again, we go back to that testing and so forth, but um, I don't think it matters. Okay. So, uh, Tom, you mentioned rain. Why why don't we want our hay rained on after it's been cut? Well, it uh, causes a myriad of problems. Uh, once we get rain on it, uh, we, it, it tends to bleach more. Uh, if, we, if we get rain on it uh, quickly after it's been cut down, it tends to have less of an effect on it. Uh, we will get still get some bleaching. If we get a lot of rain, we can leach out uh, nutrients and vitamins and so forth. Uh, so, again, it's not good at all. Uh, a lot of times we'll get what I call tiger striped hay, where we've gotten a shower or heavy dew on it and it bleaches on top. And then when you bale it, it just makes it like every at the end of every flake of that bale, you see a little bleach. 
every flake a little bleach, you know. So we really, really try to get away from that, and that's what makes making good quality hair real challenge uh, all over the country, uh, especially back here in the East. Yeah. Yeah, I live near a lot of hay fields, and it makes me very sad when when the hay gets cut, and then we have a storm roll in in July, and to watch watch the hay get get rained on. Uh, if hay is advertised as being rained on, uh, but that it was turned after it was rained on, is that possibly still a decent hay, or should we be wary of that when we're buying it? Well, again. Most all horse hay is bought on what I call sensory perception. How does it look? How does it feel? How does it smell? Uh, you know, is it soft to the touch? That kind of thing. So, you know, I go back to that green is good, brown is bad thing. If it's been rained on and that type of thing, it, it does kind of maybe send up a bit of a red flag. When we get rain and we don't get it completely dried out, uh, we get rain and it starts to mold in the field. We get some different types of molds growing and so forth. So it's, you do have to be very careful. Again, if it's just a light shower, you open a bale or two up and it still smells fresh and there's just a, just a little bit of, um, a little bit of bleach on it or something, fine. But again, if you open it up and you have that moldy smell, it's dusty. Obviously, you want to be very wary of that. Okay. Our next question is for Nettie, and I'm really, really curious about about your thoughts on this one, Nettie. It's from Jean in Colorado, and Jean wants to know if fodder that comes from sprouting grain, such as barley and wheat, for six to eight days, a viable way to supplement feed for your horses and in addition to feeding dry hay. Also, is it safe for horses who have metabol- equine metabolic syndrome? Nettie, do you have any experience with these fodder systems? Uh, you know, Michelle, I don't have a lot of experience with it. I think it's one, it's uh, sort of gaining a little bit of ground. Um, I have seen some people who are starting the hydroponic grass that uh, in areas where maybe you don't have a lot of pasture, such as where I am on Long Island, you have a way to provide your horse with some grass. But it can be expensive, uh, and it is labor-intensive. So the good news, Gene, is that you can feed wheat, barley, and even oats fodder to horses. Um, it's typically grown hydroponically, as I mentioned, and it typically has a very high moisture content, very often around about 90%. Uh, so water is good for horses, of course. That means about, again, 90% water. So another way to put it is like this. So if you're feeding 10 pounds of the fodder, about 9 pounds of it is water, 1 pound is plant matter. Now, hopefully you're not feeding quite that much. Um, now, water, again, is good, but the ratio, it may disrupt the intake of nutrients from other sources because, quite honestly, your horse may feel that he's had his fill before he eats uh, other things that are a little denser in nutrient content. Um, So the fodder from these cereal grains will also have a range in crude protein content. So uh, I saw some reports that had ranges anywhere from 15 up to 28%. So protein, again, is usually a good thing. Excess protein is usually not a problem unless your horse has uh, a certain kidney issue um, or, you know, another kind of digestive problem. Now, for a horse with equine metabolic syndrome or EMS, I would be cautious about feeding too much fodder um, and instead stick to moderate quality hay um, and, a lo- and a general low-carb you know, grain if you're feeding one. Um, but it, it is a very interesting question, Gene. I'm glad that you asked it. I don't know, Tom, if you have any additional comments on this? 
No, I've not had much experience with that, quite honestly. So I'm, I think you did very well. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah. I, I see those systems in, in the different agriculture catalogs that I, I receive. And so I'm always really curious about, about them, uh, especially being where I am or where I don't have pasture. Um, I'm super curious. So if anyone's listening and has had experience with those, we'd love to hear your stories. You can go ahead and send those in. Um, we have another question uh, from um, Gretchen in Missouri. And Tom, this is for you. And specifically, um, Gretchen in Missouri would like to know if there is a resource or a website she can go to to see images of at different grasses or hay at different maturities. Is there a guide for that? I am not aware of one. Uh, there may be, but I am not aware of one. Um, there's lots of information about the qualities at the different stages, but in terms of actual visual pictures, uh, I'm not aware of it. I, again, there's so much on the internet nowadays, I can't believe that there's not something out there, but there's not anything that I've ever gone to uh, that I would know to recommend. Okay. Um, I have been reminded by our editor-in-chief, Stephanie Church, who is reading your questions as they come in, that the March issue of The Horse will have an article on fodder. So if anyone's looking for information on feeding fodder to horses, you can look for that issue. If you aren't a subscriber to the print magazine, you can get a digital edition of that on March 1st online. Um, you can uh, sign up for that digital subscription or subscribe to the print publication. Um, our next question is for Nettie and it's from Kathy in Michigan. Uh, Kathy says that her Tennessee walker was diagnosed with insulin resistance after an episode of laminitis in spring 2010. And Nettie, laminitis really was a, a big topic of concern mm -hmm. for our audience uh, for, for this live event. She says that since then, she's watched his weight, has used a muzzle on him when he's out in pasture. He is on uh, Thyro-L and Carbex. He has no crusty neck. <laughs> but characteristic uh, fat pads. She's feeding a first cutting um, hay, but has read that second cutting may be better and has talked to other horse people who only feed second cutting. What do you think is best? And Tom's kind of touched on this a little bit on, on the differences between the cuttings. Uh, what are your thoughts, Nettie? Yeah, I was going to mention, I, I think Tom's description earlier definitely addressed this issue. But uh, again, laminitis, this is a big question, a, a big concern. I'm not surprised that lots of people wrote in about it. Um, so as Tom mentioned, you know, sometimes the second cut hay does have an improved nutritional value over the first cut, but it's not always 100% true. And uh, as he mentioned, it depends on the growing season. It depends on growing conditions um, and a number of other factors. So... Again, a good hay producer will do the best they can to, to cut hay at the appropriate time before it gets too mature and to let it dry, of course. Um, now, for an insulin-resistant horse, you actually, it's not bad to have a slightly lower quality hay. And when I say that, I mean, um, you know, certainly you don't want to feed straw, um, but it, you don't want to feed alfalfa, rich alfalfa either. You don't want to feed super premium hay as it, it has been known to cause a flare-up of laminitis. So... Uh, we've talked about soaking hay a couple of times tonight, and again, it's appropriate in this situation. You can soak whatever hay you have to reduce that starch and sugar because that's one of the big things in nutritional management of this issue is to get rid of as much starch and sugar as you can. 
And of course, uh, again, if your horse is sound enough to handle exercise, get him moving. If he's only pasture sound, have him outside as much as possible, preferably in a dry lot or with um, a mask. Now, if he's sound enough even just to do a light trail ride at the walk or a light hack, that's fine. You would be absolutely amazed with just a few minutes of exercise a couple of times a week can do to combat insulin resistance. It was actually part of my dissertation research, so I can even prove it to you with data. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But there is a pretty good amount of research out there. Now, again, he may not be sound enough to work, in which case um, just soaking that hay, um, finding, you know, moderate quality. It doesn't have to be the highest quality hay you can find, and don't be afraid to soak it. Because even if you buy high, high-quality hay, you're going to soak it anyway, you're going to leach out some of those nutrients. So um, definitely just keep an eye on that. You don't have to worry about cut as long as Tom said, you know, green is good. <laughs> you know, you're not buying stuff with a lot of weeds or dust or mold in it. Okay. Uh, our next question is for Tom, and it's from Lisa in Kentucky. And Lisa wants to know how long can you keep hay if it's stored properly? So Tom, can you answer the question, but also let us know what proper storage is? Absolutely. Um, When we store our hay, we certainly want to get it um, out of the weather. We want it inside. We'd like it in an area that um, uh, stays dry. Uh, Depending upon where you are in the country, that uh, means different situations. But here in Kentucky, we would like to have it you know, in a building that has four uh, sides on it to keep that sunlight out. And we talked about bleaching earlier. Uh, keep that hay in the dark. Uh, mainly keep it dry. Uh, we put that hay in there at the right moisture. We it's right moisture when we bail it. We put it in there. We stack it in there good and tight, again, to keep that bleach and sunlight off of it. As long as we keep it that way, uh, it should stay A-OK for two to three years without any problem. Uh, we can see some uh, decrease in vitamins uh, as that hay ages, but in terms of protein and fiber and those constituents, uh, we really don't see much degradation over a two- to three-year period. After that, uh, it tends to kind of lose its shape uh, and so forth. So I would try to get it fed up at least within two, no more than three years. Our next question is for Nettie. Jane is in Washington, and Jane says that she has three retired geldings, all about 28 years old. And she wants to know if they should have some alfalfa in their hay. She said she has given them a little bit of alfalfa and has noticed that they're drinking more water, but they're wasting less hay since she changed them from orchard grass to a 50-50 grass alfalfa mix. She said they also seem like they're a bit more spunky. Is weight gain the only thing to worry about when feeding alfalfa? Uh, She says one of her horses is a Belgian Clydesdale cross. Uh, What what are your thoughts on feeding horses alfalfa? Um, I think some people are afraid of it. I think you don't need to be, unless, of course, you have an insulin-resistant horse. Uh, But, Jane, again, you mentioned that your horses are wasting less hay, which means they're eating more, so they should be drinking more. The more forage a horse eats, the more water he needs to keep it moving through the digestive tract. So this is actually a good thing. I am sure they are loving the alfalfa that you're giving them. Most horses usually enjoy that very much. Um, But that being said, alfalfa does typically have a 
higher energy or calorie content compared to grass hay. Uh, and again, depending on the quality, it can be a big difference or it can be a small difference. Uh, but that may help explain some of the spunkiness that you mentioned. Um, so weight gain is certainly not the only purpose of alfalfa. It often helps horses with ulcers because it tends to have a higher calcium content and that can uh, help to buffer stomach acid. Um, it can help horses that need extra protein in their diet because, again, alfalfa is a legume. Legumes tend to be naturally just higher in protein compared to grasses. Um, and, again, for those obese horses and metabolic horses or horses with Cushing syndrome or insulin resistance, alfalfa, again, should be avoided. Um, she mentioned one of the horses had or chronic progressive lymphedema, which is not terribly unusual in giraffes, but it is a medical condition, so I'm sure you've worked with your vet about it. Um, not a lot of information on dietary management of that condition. There's no scientific proof that something like omega-3 fatty acids will help, but uh, there's some anecdotal evidence that it may help to soothe some of the skin inflammation that's associated with, um, with that condition with CPL and a number of omega-3 fatty acid supplements are available. So you could try that if you have the budget for it. We have a question from our live audience for you, Tom. It's Fiona is in North Carolina, and she says that she has heard that fertilizing hay pastures for growth is best done in the fall, but she is grazing her horses on, the, on that area over the winter and wonders if it would be okay to fertilize in the spring instead. When should our pastures be fertilized? Well, again, that depends upon your location in the country. Uh, here in Kentucky and in North Carolina, if you have a cool season-based pasture, uh, fall is an excellent time to fertilize. And uh, we like to do that for a myriad of reasons. Uh, spring is okay, uh, but we get a natural green-up, a flush of growth in the spring on our cool season grass, and then warm season for that matter. But uh, we typically get a natural flush of growth in the spring, and by fertilizing in the spring, we, and I'm talking primarily about nitrogen now, uh, what we do most typically, unless we have a tremendous amount of horses and we're overgrazing to start with, in that case, then fertilizing in the spring is not a bad idea. If we do a good job of rotating our pastures and keeping our forage up to that four, five, six inch height, uh, that type of thing, by fertilizing in the spring, we typically just you know, we do get added growth, but we, a lot of times we just wind up mowing more often. We also uh, fertilize those weeds that germinate in the spring along with our grasses if we have some open areas in our pasture. So for cool season species along the transition zone here, Kentucky, North Carolina, Virginia, those states, uh, fall is really good. Uh, fertilizing doesn't mean you have to take your horses off the pasture. I mean, uh Fertilize one day or keep them off a day or two till you get a good rain. Uh, anytime you put fertilizer on a pasture uh, for horses, cattle, whatever, uh, any type of lime fertilizer, always make sure that the grass is dry. You don't want to put it on there right after a rain or if you've had a heavy dew. Uh, if, it, if the leaf surface is dry, then the material will roll off of that leaf surface onto the soil surface, uh, move into the soil profile a lot quicker and that way you can get your horses back on that pasture uh, quicker. So um, uh, we have people that fertilize pastures here in central Kentucky in the fall with horses on there. Uh, may keep them off a day or two just to make sure that the uh, material has moved into profile. Uh, but fall is better. Spring's second choice. 
Uh, Nettie, our next question is for you, and it's from Donna in Texas. And Donna says that vets and hay dealers have encouraged her to buy, quote, high-quality hay or that with higher uh, higher protein content so she can feed less hay. She has two questions about that. The first, she wants to know, haven't studies suggested that a horse's natural diet is one of hours of grazing on forage that is relatively low in nutrients? And secondly, isn't it healthier to provide free choice access to hay or pasture? Uh, Nettie, what are your thoughts on high quality hay versus horses grazing all day, um, maybe feeding a lower quality hay? Sure. Uh, well, it's a good question, Donna. So, of course, yes, it is ideal for horses to eat small amounts all day long because, after all, when you think about it, this is how horses evolved. They had to pretty much make do with whatever they could get their lips on. So, if you're lucky enough to have good pasture, pasture that is productive, that's well-managed, it's not overgrazed, uh, it certainly has the potential to sustain your horses. Now, many of us don't have that luxury, and we have to rely on hay to do the job. So, a poor-quality hay often has a very high fiber content and a very and low nutrients. So yes, horses need fiber, but overly fibrous hay can actually cause that hay belly or excessive gas. So most horses very often won't even eat it. High quality hay has good protein content depending on the variety um, and the cutting. It can be from 10 to 24% roughly uh, in the growth. Growing conditions are good. It was rich in vitamins and minerals and even omega fatty acids. So you will find this goodness in well-managed pastures as well. So remember, hay is grass. Um, it's, you know, just harvested and, and baled up and, you know, served up to you and your horses in a slightly different form. So if you have, say, roughly two acres of grazing pasture per horse, your horses may very well do just fine on that alone. But if they're being worked, then we talk about adding additional hay or grain to support their needs. So uh, you don't want to feed a poor quality hay per se, uh, but again, if they have some of that free choice access to hay and pasture, yeah, that's great. You're keeping a little bit of something in their bellies all the time. You're keeping their digestive tract moving. And of course, that that is a good thing. But uh, again, the type of uh, high quality hay is obviously good for nourishing all animals, and especially if they are in work and they're working very hard, you don't want to deprive them of that either. So, again, even high-quality hay is coming from high-quality grass. So if you have high-quality pasture, it, it's sort of along the same lines. I hope, I hope that that helps clarify your question a little bit. Our next question is from Tom, and it's from Elizabeth, who is in the Seattle suburbs in Washington. She said that her hay is kept on concrete, uh, with plastic and pallets and fans and doors to allow for airflow. She says it's good quality hay, but if she buys enough of it to take her two horses through the entire year, it tends to mold by February. She says that she lives near the Puget Sound in the Pacific Northwest, uh, where it's very moist. Uh, Do you have any suggestions to help her store her hay? Uh, I know that's a a bit different climate than you're used to, Tom, but do you have any thoughts on, on keeping hay from getting too moist in storage? Well, no, that, that's, that's a really tough one being in that area because that hay will pick up moisture uh, in, in that kind of environment. So, again, I would go back to, she do, sounds like she's doing a really good job of breaking that uh, moisture barrier with the floor, uh, concrete, but she's got it up on pallets and plastic. So she's doing a good job with that. I think probably where she's running into the problem is just so 
humid and, and moist in that area that that hay is actually picking up some moisture. Now, the inside of the bale, uh, you know, should stay fairly good um, if it's baled good and tight. And again, we talked about that earlier about how to store hay, getting it in that building, getting it very tightly compacted. So, um, don't have a lot of experience with that, but uh, try to try to do the best you can about keeping that hay as close together and keeping it uh, tightly packed in there. And again, I just don't know what to tell her much about that area because it is high humidity, high moisture just about all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I grew up in that area, and not only is it moldy hay, but it's also moldy tack. So it's really, really hard to keep things keep things dry up there. I, we have time for just one last question. Nettie, our next question's for you. Pam is in our live audience, and she is moving to Texas from California and has three horses that have never grazed on pasture. She says that she would like to know what a good time frame is for transitioning her horses from their alfalfa and Timothy hay-based diet to being out on pasture. What suggestions do you have for her? Um, Well, actually, I have a couple suggestions. Um, First, when you make your move, make sure that you bring plenty of the hay that your horses are used to grazing with you because you're probably not going to find too much Timothy in Texas. You're going to have a different hay. Most likely, as uh, Tom mentioned earlier, a lot of coastal Bermuda grass in that area. Um, and so they're going to need time to adjust to that. Also, with regard to introducing them to pasture, now this is something that you're going to want to do very slowly because obviously anytime you make a change in a horse's diet, it's something you want to take a lot of time to do. Otherwise, you'll risk digestive upset, gas colic, and things like that, and obviously we want to avoid that at all costs. So uh, first things first, when you make your move, of course, your horses are going to be on the trailer for a long time, so you may want to give them a few days, maybe four or five days, even a week, to adjust to their new surroundings before you introduce any pasture at all. Then once they're settled a little bit, start with about half an hour for a few days, half an hour to an hour, uh, give them four or five days to get used to just that small amount of time, and then gradually you can add about 15 to 30 minutes um, every two or three days to their pasture grazing time until they get to a point where they can essentially be out all day. And obviously, you may be able to reduce the amount of hay you're feeding because they'll have the pasture. Um, So just rule of thumb, take your time. The slower, the better. Don't rush it. I know it's going to probably be a little bit of a management issue for the first few weeks, but in the end, it will be well worth your your time and your patience. Well, thank you, Nettie. Uh, we have run out of time tonight. I want to thank our experts for joining us. Thank you, Tom, for, for joining us, and Nettie. My pleasure. Thank you. My pleasure. And I want to thank everyone for their great questions that they sent in during registration and during our live event. Also, a thanks to uh, my helpers that you guys don't hear from. Uh, Stephanie Church is our editor-in-chief, and she's been receiving your questions tonight. We have Kevin, uh, who's been helping with sound, and Jennifer, who's making sure your stream is coming to you tonight. Uh, we also want to thank our sponsor, which is the Horses Nutrition Newsletter that comes out every Monday. Go ahead and register for that to get up-to-date, researched information to help you better feed your horse. Thank you, everyone, and we hope you join us next month for Ask the Horse Live.